Welcome to another episode of Chan with the Plan, the podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan. And in this episode, we will be talking with entrepreneur Brian Clayton, where he will be discussing his own personal business lessons in growing a tech company from zero to $20 million a year in revenue. He is currently the CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. GreenPal has been called the Uber for Lawn Care by Entrepreneur Magazine and has over 200,000 active users, completing thousands of transactions per day. Before starting GreenPal, Brian founded Peachtree Inc., one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, growing it to over $10 million a year in revenue before it was acquired by Lusa Holdings in 2013. Brian's interests and expertise are related to entrepreneurialism, small business growth, marketing, and bootstrapping businesses from zero revenue to profitability and exit. Now let's get into my discussion with Brian, where he'll discuss his business lessons and tips on how to grow a tech company from zero to $20 million a year in revenue. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show. Max, thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Fantastic. So I, I got to ask you, just in terms of researching you, about you, you created a multi-million dollar business starting off with lawn mowing, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, my first business was a grass cutting service that I started in high school and over a 15-year period of time grew that into one of the largest landscaping businesses in the state of Tennessee where I live, got it over $10 million a year in revenue and, and 150 employees. So learned a lot about how to get a business going on that first company. So if you told me before I researched you that you grew a multi-million dollar business when you're starting off lawn mowing, I, I wouldn't believe you because you and I can both agree that every homeowner that has a lawn has a lawnmower in their house, right? So they could have done right. it themselves. So I, <laughs> yeah. I understand that if you're targeting seniors, they might not have the physical energy to do it. But the fact that you're able to target like that area, how, how did you know that there was a problem to solve even when people had lawnmowers in their homes? It's insane. You know, the, the lawn mowing industry... The lawn mowing industry and landscaping industry are kind of one and the same. And, and that industry is a $99 billion industry. You wouldn't think it, but it's huge. And uh, the other crazy thing about it is, is that the top 10 players in the industry only constitute something like 5% of that $99 billion. So it's highly fragmented. It's a lot of little service providers, little small business owners, maybe solopreneurs, or maybe have one or two helpers and and so that's how I got started. And, and as you grow that kind of business, there's no shortage of people that, that want to get their grass cut. You know, even, you know, seniors, of course, but people that are just working all the time or, or uh, you know, that don't have time to do it. Or sometimes, you know, they can't even afford a lawnmower and it's actually cheaper just to pay somebody to cut your grass than it is to, to do it yourself sometimes. And so running that first business, there was no shortage of work. We, in fact, we had to turn down work quite a bit while growing it. And then as you grow that kind of company, you get it over a million dollars a year in, in revenue and you get it to 5 million and, and to 10 million, you kind of evolve from just like a residential service provider and you go more for the commercial market. So you go for big six-figure contracts or even larger contracts for airports, commercial pl uh, projects, uh, office complexes, apartment buildings, things of that sort. You grew the business to, I believe, 150 plus employees, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. And uh did it the wrong way, every which way you could do it in terms of leadership and management. And so I figured out my style and figured out what worked. And one of the cool things about building a business like that is you have to learn to do a lot of different things. And 
that was one thing I had to learn early on, you know, even at like the age of 24, 25, I had like 10 or 15 people working for me, had to learn how to be a decent leader, had to learn how to be a decent manager. And, you know, looking back over 20 years of business, I think if you're doing business right, you should evolve completely as a different person every three to five years. And that's certainly been the case for me. That's, that's one thing I'm grateful about my journey at, in, in two different businesses is that I, I, it's caused me to level up to be a better more humble person, better leader, better manager. That's one of the things I love about it. And what leadership skills you built in your first company and transitioned it effectively to uh, GreenPal? Yeah. So the first business, 150 plus employees, a lot of laborers. And, and so just, you know, we're, we're executing a, a service. And so we had a lot of, of people working really hard and and it's hard to keep people in, in that type of industry because it, the, the work is hard. People get burnt out. The, the com- competition for, for employees is really fierce. And so one thing that I did that I learned uh, over time that I kind of evolved was I would try to like create a family environment, a family atmosphere around the small business. Because that's one thing that you can do as a small business that big businesses can't do. You know, in a big business with 500 or 1,000 employees or maybe even 100, you know, these people are just a name on a spreadsheet. Whereas if, you have, if, you, if you're the owner of a smaller business, you can create a family environment. You know, like we, we really care about your success as, as, a, as a team member. We really care about what it is you're trying to do in life. And we're going to help you do that. And one thing that we did was uh, we would give out interest-free loans. Uh, every quarter, we would have a little contest and people would submit a, a little plan about, okay, well, I want to help put my kid through school or I want to uh, save up for a down payment for a house or I want to buy a new car. Or uh, we had some immigrant workers from Central America. And, and one time we, we gave a loan for somebody to build a little uh, market, like a little shop back home in their hometown. And so stuff like that. And, and we would celebrate those wins and we would say, okay, you know, how how is uh how is your shop doing that back home that your family owns that, that the company helped uh helps finance and and so these like like all of these little things that over time we were we were kind of aligning what it was that our our employees wanted with the company's success and that took care of a lot of things you know they people begin to understand that when the company wins I win and vice versa and that took care of a lot of the small problems and it also made running that business a lot of fun you ended up selling the company when it was generating about over $7 million, right? Uh, actually, it was doing $10 million a, re- a year in revenue when we sold it. And that was right at the peak. You know, that was as big as I had ever gotten it. And since then, the company that bought it has grown it even more. You know, they, the company that bought it was one of the largest landscaping companies in the United States. And so what they did was they bought my business and they put in even better systems than I had. You know, they had better buying power. They had an even better sales process than I had. And so they kind of took my business and, and put it on steroids. So, so what made you decide that it was the right time to sell the business? You know, for me, I've learned over 20 years of, of business is that my company is like the source of my purpose in life. And it's also the source of challenging me to, to grow and be more and do more and learn more and level up. And the first you know 15 years of running that company certainly did that for me. You know, like I was saying, I had to learn how to be a manager, be a leader, learn how to develop processes, learn how to develop a sales system, learn how to manage all types of different personality types, learn how to keep costs razor, razor thin and run a really super slim margin business. All these things like I learned. And then after I kind of not necessarily conquered them or mastered them, I kind of plateaued at a personal level. And I realized, wow, you know, something's missing here. I'm no longer being challenged by this. I got to a point where I 
didn't enjoy it as much as I as I once did. And so I made a decision. You know, it hit me like a ton of bricks one day. I thought, okay, well, I'm just, I'm gonna I'm gonna sell a company, and that was a really hard choice because I'd been doing it for 15 years. And from the time that I made that decision to the time that I was able to get the business sold was a little over two years. And so, you know, I I, I didn't build the business to to, to sell it. I didn't build the business for it to be acquired. Had I known that I was going to do that, I, I would have read a book called Built to Sell and then done everything that that book says. But I didn't do that. And so I kind of had to like reverse engineer a lot of things into the into the DNA of the company to get it to where it could be acquired. And so that's advice that I give to people. If you If you think that you're going to sell your business, be building it to sell. And and because it's very different than how you're probably naturally inclined to build it. And when you did sell that business, did you take a break before you started GreenPal, or were you making GreenPal during the transition of you selling the company? So when I sold the company, I had no intentions of starting another business. You know, it was it was really difficult running that company for 15 years, and it was like organized chaos every day. And and so I had no intentions of starting another business. In fact, I retired when I sold it. But I was only like 33 years old. That didn't last long. It lasted like six months, and I got bored. And then I started to realize it was like a self reflection period in my life where I started to realize that I'm wired to love business. I'm wired to want to be in the game. And, and that the business is me and I am the business. And that's where I get the purpose in my life is what the company is doing. And, and the company is, is helping its employees. The company is helping the people that use its products. The company is creating prosperity and opportunities for the people that are in its orbit. And that was all missing. And so I thought, okay, well, I need to start, I need to start the next company. And the idea for GreenPal, which is, which is the Uber for lawn mowing, you know, which is, We've been at this business for eight years now. We're an eight-year overnight success. That was one that I was kind of solving my own problem. I saw every day running my, my landscaping company that it was just really difficult for homeowners that needed a basic grass cutting service to find the best fit lawn mowing service in, in their neighborhood. Because, you know, you want the smaller solo entrepreneur, you want the smaller service provider but they don't have any kind of brand presence. They don't have a receptionist. They're busy cutting grass all day, so they can't take your call. It's like pulling teeth to get them to actually show up on time. And and so I saw this and I thought, okay, an app needs to exist to make everything just run smooth, super smooth, like like an Uber or, or a Lyft or an Instacart or something like that. And so I recruited two co-founders and we just went to work. And luckily we were a little naive in the early days. We didn't know how hard it was going to be. And that naivete is what kind of what got us in the game, but we just started working on the app, started working on on slowly building this thing and building the marketplace. And it took a long time to get the flywheel going, but but uh, after we started figuring out, we started started moving a little quicker. Here we are, eight years in, you know, over two hundred thousand people using this app to get their grass cut and doing over twenty million dollars a year in revenue. It's 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 amazing how far we've come in eight years, but we have a long way to go. I definitely want to dive into the company a bit more, but let's start from the beginning. How did you choose your co-founders and how did you know that they were the right fit to start your team? Yeah, the the idea, like the decision around who you decide to co-found a business with is a make or break decision for the business. And so I don't, like my first recommendation around that topic is don't get a co-founder. Try to do it alone because you can probably do it alone. A lot of times people, you know, particularly when they're starting a tech company, the first inclination is is two things: get a co-founder and raise money. And I think 
you don't need to do either. I think you can bootstrap, and I think you can do it by yourself. Now, that said, I got really, really lucky and got two co-founders that without them, I don't know that we'd be where we are. And so I got just flat out lucky, but it doesn't always happen that way. And, and you know, if the you got to think of it like a marriage. You got to think of it like, you know, we, we date somebody for a year or two or five years before we before we get married. You have to think of it like with that sort of significance and weight, because, you know, if you're starting a startup from scratch, you're inventing a brand new product, you're going to be spending more time with this person than you are your spouse. And if the business is successful, odds are the, the business partnership is going to last longer than most marriages do, sadly, as that is. You know, that's just the way it is. And then then the third reason is it's actually much simpler and easier to get a divorce than it is to unwind a cap table and unwind a, a, a business partnership. So you really got to think through that really closely. And, and you really have to, like, find your business soulmate before you go into business with them. And, and, you know, like Paul Graham says, you know, you, you should find a hacker and a hustler if you're starting a tech company and that's great, but that's usually hard to do. And, and it's usually hard to, to find uh, personalities that, that align. So really think through that closely. For me, I recruited uh, two people who I trusted. I'd known them for over 10 years each. And, and then also I knew they had like this insane ambition and insane work ethic. And like they, they had a chip on their shoulder to make something of their lives and to create something great in life. And they wanted more in life. And so, you know, I knew the business could be the vehicle to get us, get us all there. And that was it. You know, I, I knew so long as we had that, that we could learn everything else we had to learn and do everything else we had to do. With the, the three of us, none of us knew how to code. None of us knew how to build software. We had never built a tech product before. But uh, the three of us all had insane ambition and, and a chip on our shoulders to do something big and great. And speaking of using that dating methodology about the first year is more of a dating period, you said before in a previous interview that you only did 10K in total revenue for the first year. So how did you know to keep going? Like, How did you evaluate the success based off 10K of revenue? Yeah, the first like two or three years were like really, really tough. And a lot of it was kind of an exercise of faith with little, little points of validation. And so when we launched the first version, which was a really big flop, it was a failure. We paid a, a development shop to build it and, and it was a total flop. We at least, you know, at the time we were reading a book called The Startup Owner's Manual by an author named Steve Blank. And for people who aren't familiar with who Steve Blank is, they may have heard of the book called The Lean Startup by an author named Eric Reese. Well, Steve Blank was Eric Reese's kind of uh, mentor. And so the book talks about a lot of things in terms of starting a company from scratch. But the one of the main theses of the book is get out of the building. Like, as simple as that sounds, you have to get out of the building and you have to talk to your customers. And so the first hundred people that we were able to hustle up to use our product, we met with every single one of them that would meet with us. Not not all hundred, but but like probably thirty or forty people that would meet with us, and we would interview them. We would just ask them open-ended questions: Where did the product let them down? Where what, what did they hope it would do? Where they were they ever delighted by anything it did? You know, because it was constantly failing. The service provider wouldn't show up. Prices were too high. They did a crappy job. You name it, and and so we were we were seeing like all of this negative feedback, and rather than that, that dispelling our dreams, we we took it as validation because 
we could tell they were disappointed. They were let down. They wanted the app to work. They wanted it to, to fulfill the promise of push a button, get the grass cut. And there was one other thing we never heard. We never heard, I don't need this. Everybody wanted it to work. Everybody needed it. And so, and so when you're talking to early users like that, first off, you have to talk to users. Like That's the highest leverage time you can ever spend is, is meeting with your customers and, and, and even like watching them use your product. That's the highest leverage time you can spend in the first year of starting a startup. That was the feedback that kind of gave us the validation to keep going. And the other thing is, is that we got some marketing insights out of that too. We, we, we understood, like we would ask them, how would you normally get this done? And, you know, they say, well, I call around friends and family and so on. And then I would go to Google out of desperation and I would just put in the, you know, Google box, lawn care service near me. And that kind of gave us an early validation that we could have a marketing channel too. So there was two, two points of validation was people never said, I don't need it. They, they always expressed frustration because they wanted it to work. And we saw the opportunity for a marketing channel. And when you're doing these types of interviews, if you see apathy and if you see like a, just kind of a meh and ambivalence, then that is like a warning. That's a red flag that, that you're about to waste the next five years of your life. But if you see people disappointed and engaged, at least, then that's good validation to keep going. And speaking of marketing channels, you said that one of the most common mistakes that early entrepreneurs make is that they cast too wide of a net in terms of channels, whether it's like trying to do email, uh, Instagram, SEO. And you said that it's better to focus on one channel, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. That's my advice is when you're starting out, a couple things. One, you have to innovate on whatever the product is. Of course, we all know that. We, we have to build some kind of new innovative thing. But you also have to innovate on distribution. You also have to innovate on growth. You have to do those things at the same time. And so Reed Hoffman says, one of his quotes, he says, I would rather have a shitty product with great distribution than a awesome product with shitty distribution. And so the point is, like, it's much, much, much harder to get the distribution right than it is the product. And without the distribution, and the uh, the product is DOA. And and so for us, you know, we were able to st uh, stumble upon that right out the gate that, okay, SEO can be a good channel for us. And we're gonna bet the company in that one channel and we're not gonna worry about anything else for like the first three years. And we didn't. And really to this day, we still don't. You know, over half of our users still find us just through good old fashioned organic search which is now probably 25 years old. And we don't worry about stuff like TikTok ads or Instagram story ads or Twitter ads or, you know, whatever. Like we, we, just, we just put all of our weight in one channel because you're probably not going to be good at more than one channel until you just like reach multi-billion dollar status. Wait, so you're saying that when we start a business, you should focus on one channel and then once that channel generates you the multi-million dollars, then you can focus on others? I think this is how it's unfolded for me. It's, it's better to, to do more of what's already working than to try to fix something that's not working. And so, like, let's say, let's say you unlock one channel, you really figure out content marketing, or you really figure out SEO, or you really figure out LinkedIn ads. I think you push that to the end until you reach the point of diminishing returns. And eventually you will, but you keep going until it doesn't work anymore, or until, it, until, until the returns start to plateau off. And then you gotta go find another channel. But the thing is, is most, most startups don't even get that right. They don't even focus on one channel. They never get traction in one channel. And so they try to do five and none of them work. 
and they're kind of spinning their wheels in all five or all three when in fact you should really just focus on like if you got a fashion brand the best channel in the world is instagram so you got to figure out like how in the hell you're going to have be the best at that one channel because you're not going to be good at pinterest and twitter and facebook ads at the same time you got to be good at one get it unlocked until you get to a point where you have the luxury of, of experimenting and playing in other channels, but don't, don't try to do two or three at the same time out the gate. So from what you told me before, you said that you evaluated with your co-founders that SEO was the way to go. So you didn't like test a bunch of channels, see what gained traction. You, you knew that SEO was the right move. No, we, we did. We tested probably a dozen right out the gate because we knew that we would at least need to do small tests in each. And so we figured that out probably in about three months maybe longer, four or five months, we would put little thousand dollar campaigns together in, in, in Facebook ads and in Google AdWords and in, in, in LinkedIn ads. And, and we would never be able to get the ROI that we were getting out of Google organic search traffic. Now, you know, organic search is a little hard because you don't know if I put in the thousand immediately, you can't connect the dots with what you're going to get because, it, because the, the turnaround time and the feedback loop is months and years. But we still knew that, okay, if we're going to put together a ten dollars or $20,000 campaign this month, are we better off buying, you know, sprinkling it around all these different paid channels? We even tested, we tested radio ads and, and, uh, and newspaper ads uh, and even direct mail. And none of them, like all of them just seemed to be like pouring gas on wet leaves. And none of them had any kind of like lasting equity in them. It was like, the, like when the campaign was over, that was it. Like, and, and hopefully you got some customers out of it and, and you held on to them. But with SEO, we knew, okay, well, if we, if we put like $10,000 into like a, into like a PR campaign that, that we can earn some backlinks and another five in some, in some good content and another five on a, on a, on a technical SEO developer. And we do that for a year then we may we, we may be on to something and, and we have some some durability around it. And so we had enough traction in that in SEO to validate it along the way. And it was really clear early on for us that it was the best channel. What was the feeling like when you started getting uh, the user acquisition? You know, there's never been a moment in eight years of this business where it was just like, it was never like, oh, it's working. You know, <laughs> it, was, it's, it has been, it's been like, it's like, it has been, like to use American football's analogy, it has been the running game ever since. And there's never been like a, a breakout. Like it's always been two and three yards at a time. So there, but there have been like little moments that I remember. And you know, now that we have several hundred thousand people using the app, we ended our first year with 20 people. But I remember one day, I think in year two or three, it was a Saturday and my two co-founders and I were in the office, like we were every Saturday and we were just grinding on this thing. And, and something like 30 or 40 people had signed up that day and I didn't know who any of them were. And that was a big moment because I knew if we, because up until then it was very much word of mouth and a little hand to hand combat while we were getting the SEO uh, flywheel going. And so it was a Saturday, 30, 40 people signed up. I didn't know who any of them were, didn't recognize any of the names. I thought, wow, you know, if we can just do that times 10 and then do it by 10 again, then we'll have a business. And I, I knew if we could make it work just in Nashville, Tennessee, and get 40 people to sign up, then I knew I could get 40 people in every city in the United States and, and every day, and, you know, maybe even 400 to sign up. And I knew it was just a matter of, of, of mass and multiplication at that point. 
but it wasn't like anything I could celebrate. It was just like a, it was just a validation that, that eventually we would have a business. How about the uh, freelancer lawn care company side? Was it hard to get people on board on that side? In the early days, yeah, it was difficult because our product really stunk. We didn't have the tools like it, you know, like today, GreenPal is like, is the operating system that a small lawn care service uses to run their business. And so it's everything from getting new customers to route optimization, getting paid on time, a review management system, a CRM, and a lot of other stuff. And so today it's, it's, it's a one, it's one platform that a small service provider can run their entire business on. But in the early days, it wasn't any of that. It was barely like two or three things to complete the, the, the loop on the transaction. And so the way that, that we kind of hustled our way through that was that we would cold call every one of these lawn care services. Uh, we launched in Nashville, our first market. In fact, we spent three years in Nashville trying to figure out how to get this thing going. And we would cold call every lawn care service that advertised on Craigslist and Facebook and Yelp. And we figured out on Sundays, Sunday afternoons was the best time to call them because the other six days of the week, they were mowing yards. And we would get them on the phone, we'd pitch them on the idea, and then we would get them signed up. And then we noticed like they wouldn't bid, they wouldn't engage with it. If they did get hired, rarely would they show up on the day they were supposed to. And so the way we kind of hand cranked that was I would offer free coaching and mentoring and consulting for these lawn care services to grow their business. You know, I, I know the lawn mowing business as good as anybody. I, I had built an eight-figure business doing it. And so they were like, oh, shoot, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to give you this free coaching every week. And as part of that, you know, I just need you to use use my app. And I just need you to use it and engage with it. And that's what got us, like, for the first two years to keep server providers, like, you know, on the shelf in inventory, so to speak, so they could be hired while we built out the, the tool set that, that eventually became the, the glue for the, that got them to stick. You started off in Nashville, Tennessee for a few years. When did you decide that, hey, maybe it's time to expand to other states and other cities? It wasn't until we knew that we could predictably deliver the service on a consistent basis. And by that, I mean, homeowner signs up, they get three or four quotes, they can read reviews. They hire somebody to come mow it on Tuesday. And the person they hire actually shows up on Tuesday and mows it and does a great job. And it wasn't like as simple as that sounds, it took us three years to get that right and to build the product and the platform to ensure that that all happened. And so once we got that figured out where we could reliably get the service executed for the homeowner on a continual predictable basis, and then also retain those homeowners too, then it, we knew there was no reason to go wide until we got that figured out. And so that kind of that focus, that mentality to, to not go too fast, to just go deep and really get it dialed in, like nail it before you scale it, that was kind of table stakes for us because we're, we're self-funded. And so we didn't have a whole bunch of money to just you know, take long shots down the end zone. You know, we, we had to, again, do the running game kind of strategy and so that's one of the, the good things about bootstrapping is that it, it, it course corrects you. It causes you to make better decisions because scarcity is the mother of invention. And, and so we made damn sure that, we, you know, we had something like a thousand customers in Nashville before we launched our second, our second market, which was Tampa, Florida. And then we did that for another year. And then, and then, our, and then a year after that, we launched our third market. And then after we had three markets humming 
we then developed a little playbook and we launched a new city every two months after that until we were in every major city in the United States. When you first started off, like what was the issue in terms of retaining these clients? So like they might give you a try, but if the experience isn't good, they probably will just go back to how they would normally get their uh, grass cut. So how did you, how were you able to find out what the problem is in terms of like retain these customers and retain them long-term in order to build a base? Yeah. It's like when you're building a, a piece of technology that enables something to happen in the real world. People do not care how good your app is, how good your design is, how, how bug-free it is. Like All they care about is, did he do a good job mowing the grass and did he show up when you're supposed to? And so the app is like table stakes. The, the technology is table stakes. And people don't give a crap about how good your technology is. is, is did the guy show up and mow the yard? And he do, did he do a good job? And and these people are not our contractors. They're not. We're, they're not our employees. We, we. 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 They are not in our employee. We don't have agency over them. So we had to slowly figure out like what are the product kind of guardrails that in a, that ensure a consistent experience that ensure that the homeowner or the consumer is happy to where they continue to use it and they tell their friends about it. And so for us, like that, that's a couple, number of different things, but some of them are we measure service providers on their reliability. So every one of them has a reliability rating. So that means like, how often do they actually show up on the day they're supposed to show up? And that matters. And, and that's displayed along their bids. And, and then also we measure how often do they get booked for a second visit? That's an indication of was the homeowner happy with their service? And then also there's like five star, there's like the star rating reviews too. And so those three things are the main ways we understand who's good, who is, and who is not. And then we promote the service providers that are good on the marketplace and demote and sometimes expel the ones that aren't good. And so that over time has enabled us to deliver a better experience for consumers than they can get, you know, doing it the old way, calling on Craigslist or Thumbtack or Home Advisor or something like that. So it's similar to the Uber and Airbnb model where you rate the drivers and if they have a bad rating, they could actually be expelled if they get too many, right? Yeah, so so it's similar to both those platforms, but different. So Uber is a marketplace that is that is marketplace assigned, and so what that means is that the, the marketplace assigns you your supplier, assigns you your driver. You really don't care who takes you to the airport, so long as they show up and and drive safely. Airbnb, on the other hand, is marketplace assist, so they don't assign you the you know the the beach villa. You scroll through a, a rich inventory and read rich data that the marketplace aggregates for you and, and enables you to, to book these experiences that you otherwise would never have access to, but it's marketplace assist. And so we're more like that. We're more, more like marketplace assist where we very quickly surface to you, the homeowner, the consumer, a list of four or five options and prices and availability to where you can book them off the shelf and, 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 and know that you're hiring the best fit, but we don't assign to you the the vendor that that that's still your choice to hire who you want to work with okay that makes sense and in terms of the app you stated before that the first iteration of the app you outsourced it for six figures and it didn't go well it it was a disaster as you would say and then the next time you did it on your own so what was the learning lessons from the first time you did it when you outsourced it to an agency to develop the app for you yeah a lot of lessons learned you know first off this was money that you know we borrowed from uh, you know, I had proceeds from my first business sale, but I invested all of that in really illiquid stuff. I didn't like plow that money into the second company. So this was like money that my co-founders had borrowed on lines of credit, 401ks liquidated, 
sold a car, friends and family loans, stuff like that. It was like a hundred over hundred fifty thousand dollars we spent with this dev shop to build what we thought Green Pal should be. Then learned really quickly that wow, you know, if you're gonna be in the tech business, you gotta really you gotta know how to build tech. You just you gotta know how to build software. There's just there's just no two ways about it. It's kinda like it's kinda like if I told you I wanted to start a five star restaurant but I didn't have a chef and I don't know the first thing about recipes you would call me an idiot. And so that's kind of kind of what it was like trying, you know, thinking that you could start a tech company, but not not being able to build software. And so we learned really quickly that we were way off the mark with where we were going to have to end up to ultimately be in terms of, of building out the product. And that the only way that we were going to get there is if we could self-execute these things. We couldn't like outsource. We couldn't outsource the iteration of it. It just, A, you'd go broke doing it and B, it would just take too long. And so we we set out to learn how to build software. My my co-founder went to a, a boot camp, you know, full time and learned back end programming and I learned how to be a really terrible front end engineer. And we then began working on the second version, which was a total rewrite. Everything that shop built, we scrapped. I think we kept the logo. That was it. I think the lesson learned was you have to have some kind of eighty twenty mastery of everything that you intend to delegate. So as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you got to be 80-20 good at a lot of different things. Design, UX, UI, copywriting, you know, SEO, if that's your channel, or, 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 or whatever marketing you got to be 80-20 good at. You got to be good at customer feedback, you know, and soliciting that and, and interpreting and, and, and acting on that. You got to, like, be good at all these different things, and, and, and development is one of them, too. And you can't delegate these things until you have some sort of acumen around them. Just going back to the restaurant thing, for example, is... Is that why a lot of celebrities and athletes that start restaurants and they flop out a couple of years because they thought they could just throw money at it and just hire a chef? That doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually work. And it's funny you say that. One of my good friends is, is in the restaurant business, and he and I kind of talk about it from time to time. It's funny, the parallels. He was telling me that every good restaurant, either a chain or, or independent restaurant, it all starts with a recipe. Like you, you have to have something proprietary in those recipes that delivers a, a, a awesome, consistent, predictable experience for your customers. And if you don't have that, like in your DNA as the founder, uh, you know, whether it's a restaurant or, or in, in the code you're writing for your software app, then, you, then no, you can't just, you can't just hire like a, I don't know, maybe you can, but I don't, I, I think to your point, like, yeah, that's why a lot of those restaurants fail. Cause you can't just go hire a chef. It's gotta be in the DNA of the founding team for it to be authentic and for it to be differentiated. So if I were wanting to start a car dealership, I would have to really understand the cars. I can't just like hire a mechanic or a salesperson. If I want to get into tech like you have, I would actually have to understand how tech works. I can't just outsource it because they don't know the business as much as you are trying to start it. Yeah, exactly. You have to, somebody on the founding team has to have the domain experience and has to have the, the skills needed to, to execute. Otherwise, it's going to be really, really, really tough. Now, you know, now if you're on your second or third go, you know, like, you know, like if, if, if you're an entrepreneur that already has like a $10 million exit under your belt, maybe you can, you can sidestep some of these, some of these laws of business that I've, that I have learned. But if you're just going from like zero to one and this is your first thing, you're still having to prove yourself. Yeah. You're going to need, you're going to need to know how to do all this stuff at, at, at a basic level. Otherwise, you have no idea how to delegate them. So 
So like do everything yourself first, learn how to do it, and then begin to delegate. Don't just delegate right out, right out the start. I think uh, one of my favorite books is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And what the what Dr. Stephen Covey in that book talks about is stewardship delegation. So it's, okay, you're a developer. You're, on, you're coming onto our team. Here's the project I need you to work on. Here's how we do it. Here's why we do it this way. Here's what we expect of you. Here's, how, here's our processes. This is how we push code. I am stewarding this to you. I am delegating this to you from stewardship versus delegation from abdication which is, oh, I don't know how to do this. You handle it and let me know when it's done. That never works out. And it certainly didn't for us. <laughs> what resources did you use to build up your uh, coding muscle? So my, my co-founder, who was the most engineering inclined out of the three of us and was the best candidate to, to, to learn the backend side, which is the harder of, of, of all of it, he went to a, a boot camp here in Nashville called Nashville Software School. And it was a six-month program and it cost i think 12 grand and he learned just enough to to begin hacking away on a second second version i learned front-end programming you know basic javascript html and css and learned how learned how to do be half-assed good at you know github so i could i could push push my stuff and i learned everything just off of youtube off of online courses envato touch was a really good resource that I learned a lot of stuff from. There was, a, there was an online school called Code School that, that you could like do live coding along with them, but I learned a lot. It took me about six months just dedicating everything to that and reading every book I could and then just doing it. So it's like, I learned just by doing it. I, le I learned by, by, by reading every, every blog post and, every, and watching every YouTube channel I could, taking every online tutorial, and then just trying to build the damn website. <laughs> and it took a long time. And I never got, I never got really good. I got good enough. It's all about execution, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I got good enough to where I could then hire people that, that, I mean, and use what little money that we were making to go hire people. And, and had I not done that, then I wouldn't have known who to hire, what to hire them for, what to expect, if they were any good or not, I wouldn't have known. I wanted to get your opinion on this quote, because it, it goes back to what you just said. I, I'm assuming you know who Gary uh, Vaynerchuk is. And he said that when you start building a business, you want to live on the, the minimum amount that you can possibly live on. So then you can outsource and hire so you can build as fast as possible. What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. But it's just one of those things that gets said a lot and you never see it. Another quote that, that I like is Mark Cuban. He says, the least you can live on, the greater your options. And so for us, we were self-funded, bootstrapped. And, and, and man, I mean, yeah, the first three, four years, we were on a Many of us were on like a ten dollar a day food budget and and living out of the office and working seven days a week and you know living like no paychecks for for the first two years you know just like hey you know a couple hundred bucks this week get you by. In fact, my other co-founder was doing PR, products, customer service, design, but he 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 never learned how to code, and it wasn't because he couldn't. He just he was doing other things. But after we started making a little bit of money we began to understand, okay, well, this is, this is how we can get another developer to, to help us out with this because we have so much to build. And back in those days, in like 2014, 2015, in Nashville, Tennessee, where we live, you could make $30 an hour driving for Uber. And so we figured out that you could hire a decent developer in Pakistan for around, around $40 an hour, and you can make almost that driving for Uber. So he would like drive two or three hours a day 
because that would get us another two or three hours of dev time. So that's just a little story about this, like the hustle. And, and to Gary Vaynerchuk's point, it's like in the early days when you're like trying to get something going from scratch, it's it's all in hand to hand combat. You are your business. It's all on you. And you get by any means necessary, you're going to have to get the business going. And a big input on that is how, how much it takes you to live. And the least you can live on, the greater your options. Absolutely. Did you have family at this time when you're building the business? I, I've never been married and I have no kids. And so I oftentimes, like I, I do coaching and mentoring for business owners in Nashville where I live as a hobby. And I'm mentoring a guy right now that that just went through uh, Y Combinator. And he's got he's got a kick-ass idea and he, and he's, he just got funding. But I mean, I think he's got a second kid on the way and I'm sitting here thinking, man, I just don't know how you're going to do this. So it's certainly not impossible. I don't understand how you can do it because just, you know, my, my journey running a business, I don't know how you would have the balance of being a good father while getting a business going from scratch. Now that my business is making, you know, 20 million something dollars a year, I could be the father of the year because I have all kinds of free time now. But the first five years, I mean, I probably would have been the worst father in the world. Yeah, that's why I wanted to ask you, right? Because like usually people who want to start businesses, they might be like, if they're in early mid thirties, they might have a wife, they might have a kid. So it goes back to like how how do you balance like trying to grow a business while also like balancing the family life, and you have to have like some sort of budget as well to take care of the family too, right? So it's one of those things like if you did have a family, it'd be it'd be good to share. But like, what what would be your like insights about a situation like that? Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, that's just my advice. Like, like if you've got. If you got, if you're married and you have a kid or two, startup life ain't for you. And and unless unless you have some kind of track record where you can go and raise a ton of money, and you're already like wired in, and you can go raise a bunch of money, you can kind of you can kind of do it a little bit easier way, and you know how to deploy that money. It's not it's not just like oh money cures all. It's like you have to know how to deploy the money too. So it's like you need you needed to have been on a team in your 20s or, or 30s where you saw how, how capital came into the business and how it was appropriately allocated to, to get the business going. You need to have that experience. Otherwise, you don't know how to, how to do it. At least, and, and, you know, like for me personally, like if I had raised $5 million, which we almost did, uh, thank God we didn't, we would have we pissed it all away. So, so it's like, unless you've got a track record, you already got a single or a double, I wouldn't do it. I, I would I would build wealth in other ways. I would I would just work my corporate job that I would like still live off on rice and beans and invest in real estate or something. I, I wouldn't try to start a startup not not with a friend not with a family because one or two things are going to happen. Either you're, you're going to be gone all the time, and maybe if you can you know like maybe if you can do that for three or four years, maybe it's okay, or or you're going to fail. Like because if you're not if, unless you're gone all the time, you're not going to succeed. And if you fail, then you just wasted four years and some, maybe the family's nest egg. So I wouldn't do it. But that's just one guy's advice. What do I know? That's a very transparent answer because there might be like the motivational, like, oh, you can do it type of thing. But I really appreciate you being like very transparent in terms of that type of answer. Yeah. And I, it's not, I'm not being, I'm not, I'm tr- like, I, I promise I'm trying not to be like condescending. I'm just being re- realistic. Startup life ain't for everybody. It's a young man's game. I'm 41 years old and I've been at this business for eight years and I'm just now getting it going. Like just now I got a team of 24 people 
and we're profitable and we're kicking ass. But just now, eight years later, and I sacrificed a lot to to to, to get here. And if I had had a family and kids along the way, I I, I wouldn't, we wouldn't have made it. Now, maybe if you've got like the world's most supporting spouse, because really your spouse is your co-founder too, but still the kids are going to suffer. So yeah, that's just my, but then again, I don't have kids. So my brother's got four kids and I oftentimes give him advice. I'm like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe Addison, who's eight years old, shouldn't have a, a, an iPad just yet. And my, my brother says, you know, you should write a book, parenting advice from the man who has no children. So, so then again, I don't have kids. So what do I know? Throughout your entrepreneurial career, you've always bootstrapped, right? You've never had investor money. Is that correct? That's right. And, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that one path is better than the other. They both have their pros and cons. And the, the bootstrap self-funded way is, is harder. You know, it's slow and low, but it's, your, your chances of success, I think, are, are better so long as you're not willing to give up. The raising outside capital has, it's, it's kind of like, you know, those guys are selling you one thing and it's rocket fuel. And if you try to put rocket fuel in a, you know, in a, in a Ford Taurus, you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up. And so you better be willing to, you better have something that needs rocket fuel if you're going to raise that money. And the reality is for most entrepreneurs, it's a bad bet. You know, one out of 10 pan out and, and, and the VC, the angel group, whatever, you know, they got, they got their bets spread over 30 bets, 100 bets. You got one. And so, you know, if you go that path of raising outside capital, you better be okay with, with that ride. And you better be willing to sign up for the get rich or die trying, you know, and, 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 and when it works out, it's great. Everybody gets rich and 90% of the time it doesn't. And, and the entrepreneurs, you know, are left with a, with hopefully a good experience they can apply to the next thing. And then hopefully they didn't go backwards in life, but it's, it's still sad. They wasted, you know, five years, 10 years of their life on the thing. What's business plan one one? Like what's some good tips from Brian that you can provide in terms of like building up a good business plan before you like start like proving the model that it's a problem we're solving for your target consumers. There's so many quotes that I could quote. Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the nose. George Patton, every every battle plan, no 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 battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. And Steve Blank said something similar too. Every, no, no no business plan survives first contact with the customer. So it's like planning is a is is, is an essential activity. But it, it's also kind of it's also kind of fruitless because because you have no idea until until you get the thing into the marketplace and start getting feedback from the customers, and and so I guess my my advice is spend less time planning, spend more time doing, plan to the minimum degree, but like get a prototype out there as quick as you can, and and start getting feedback around that. And, and, to, to, and, you know, the, the lean startup methodology of the MVP, while it doesn't always apply to every business idea, it does apply to most. And the, whatever the least path of getting the minimum viable product and the minimum feature set you can put together and whatever the cheapest way you can get there is and get that in the hands of a dozen or two dozen users, that's when the real insight gets unlocked. Because because you can plan 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 all you want, and it's all assumptions, and and ninety percent of it's going to be BS. And it's really get in there and start doing, get people using it, try to get customers. That's how you learn. So it's really about getting into market and get that customer feedback, similar to what you did in the first year. You had 
the customers that are willing to meet with you. So it was sort of a focus group. So then you found out what worked, what did, and then build upon that in the next iteration. Exactly. And that's all that matters. And the book, the startup owner's manual, that is all that book is about. And it really is. It really does need 300 pages to beat into your head. But that's all that matters. Get the feedback, like get the first version out, get feedback, build, measure, learn, rinse and repeat, make it super easy for people to give you feedback, completely frictionless, because that's, that's all that matters is get those learnings. So then you know what you're building and you know, kind of how to, how to forge your way through the darkness. Great. And in terms of bootstrapping, you mentioned something that I want to touch upon in this episode of my podcast is about hiring a fractional expert. Because for example, uh, let's say you you build a business up to a certain point, but you need some marketing expertise and you, you can't hire a VP of marketing because they're like, let's say 250000 a year, but you can hire a fractional expert for a couple hours a week as an example. So can you tell me more about like the benefits of a fractional expert and how would someone find one? Yeah. So that's the lesson that I've learned the hard way over the years is that, you know, when you're starting a business, you might be making hundred K in revenue, 250 K in revenue, half a million in revenue. Like you always need these big key hires and you can't afford them. Like you need, you need like a rock star CMO. You need a rock star uh, chief of legal. You need a rock star HR person. And they, each one of these people make six figures, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe like maybe even a whole lot more. And so, so it's like, what do you do? And so the mistake I've always made is, is, you know, you hire somebody who sucks and you, you know, for 40 hours a week, cause it's all you can afford. And that's a, that's a mistake. And what I've learned and, and what I've course corrected over on the last five years, is you're better off hiring the absolute best for whatever they make three or $400 an hour and hire them for one or two hours a, a month or one or two hours a week. And then let that guide let that guide everything else. So, so you maybe maybe they set the strategy for the marketing, or they set the they set the strategy for the the technical side of it, or 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 they they scope it out because they know what they're looking at, and and you're getting the benefit of their experience, and then you execute the the plan that they come up with, and then and then that does that does something else too. Is it it acts as like a forcing function that causes you as the founder to level up and to execute at a higher level. Versus if you had just brought somebody in who's junior, then then then, then the, the the execution level stays low. And so if you bring in somebody who's senior level and beyond, then you're you're like up against this tripwire on a weekly basis because you're interacting with them and and you're coming back to them with what you're doing and and it forces you to get done the stuff that needs to get done at, at a high at a high level. And so these days you can you can get these people in many places. You know, Upwork, TopTal. Those are two of my favorites. And then, but then like, I think there's a marketplace for CPAs. A lot of the stuff you can get on Upwork though. And I mean, really good people and, and all over the world and, and, and domestically. It's just, you got to pay people what they're worth. Well, I didn't know that. Like I thought like Upwork and it's, it's more like freelancing for like graphic design or something like that. But you, there are reputable, like high quality people there that have that like VP CMO experience. Yeah. I spend a hundred thousand dollars on Upwork a week and there's there's all kinds of talent on there, man. Like like ten years ago, it was a lot of like you're saying, graphic designers and quite frankly, not even good ones. But now, man, like you can get anything you need on there. I, in fact, I was in a lawsuit about four years ago, and I got a rock star forensic accountant <laughs> to work on work with me on this lawsuit because the person that I was suing uh, was cooking the books on a business deal. 
and I got a rock star forensic accountant that 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 won me the case on Upwork. This cat made three hundred twenty-five dollars an hour, but he was worth every penny. And I never would have I never would have been able to hire him had it not been for Upwork. So yeah, Upwork you can get any anything you need on there. Well, I'm going to check that out. So you said this guy was three hundred dollars an hour. Three hundred dollars an hour. Yeah, and I I mean I've got a lady that that does our legal stuff. She makes like. She makes over $300 an hour. I've got a developer that makes $550 an hour who's kind of a senior level guy that who who looks over a lot of our stuff. I have developers that make $100 an hour. I have I have uh content creators that make, you know, 75 an hour. I've got uh I've got SEO leads that that make 150 an hour and beyond and so and, and so these are just contractors we use. We also have 23 in-house employees, but but we also use the hell out of Upwork for for freelancers and contractors to kind of to kind of act as a fulcrum to everything else we're doing. In terms of um, your your business right now, you said before that you want to make it easy as easy as possible for customers to reach you. So you'll have like your phone number, email, social, uh, texting apps. And I, I know a lot of like entrepreneurs now they're starting their websites and they only have like a contact form and maybe an email, but there's no phone number. Like from your experience, is the telephone still a good viable way for customers to reach you, or like what's your experience in terms of what's the most contact uh, from your website? I think in the early days, when your customers are in the dozens, you need you need to put all that stuff front and center. So your mobile number, your personal email, maybe even your WhatsApp, and 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 just like any which way that people can. And also in-app chat, like an intercom, you know, some kind of in-app chat that goes to your cell phone, you know, probably five or six different ways. And then let them decide how they want to contact you. If they want to respond back to your transactional email, it needs to go to you and you need to be able to read that and respond back in 10 minutes. And that's seven days a week. And that's and that right there will will help you get through the first year, because if you make it frictionless for people to tell you where you suck and tell you what they want. Well, then you're never at a loss for what you should be working on. Whereas a lot of entrepreneurs are resident to that feedback. They make it difficult to get it. And then they're in the dark and they're like taking guesses on what they should be focusing on. And and that, that makes it a lot harder to, to be successful. In fact, you're kind of relying on luck at that point. So when you start off, don't worry about what's like the cutting edge. Just show every contact channel available, phone number, email, live chat, socials, all that stuff everything meet them where they're at and and not and not just like have that stuff front and center but like also have have the plumbing in place where they can also hit you up if if you have an app if you have a website the live chat needs to be on every screen and you know if you use intercom they have an app too and so so this stuff hits you up on on your phone and so like the first three years of green pal i was the customer support agent in fact i still do an hour or two a day of of customer support because I always want to be within really close distance to, to what our customers are saying. But I would be out to dinner with my girlfriend and like, hold on, let me stop. There's some guy in Denver, Colorado that his lawn guy didn't show up today. Let me see what's going on here. You know, like it was, it was, it was 20 hours a day, you know, uh, dealing in, in answering these people quickly. But I can tell you in eight years, I've always known what the next three moves are. Because I always know what it is we need to be focused on because I'm always talking to users. I really appreciate you uh, coming on to share your insights on growing a $20 million per year revenue company. I want to end off with uh, this last question that I ask all my guests. So my podcast is based off of like helping people get past a roadblock and 
hopefully your insights will help them pass one of these roadblocks. So whether it's professional or personal life, what was one of the biggest roadblocks that you faced and how were you able to overcome it? Oh man, where do you even start? So, so from a, from a business standpoint, a roadblock that I have dealt with is, is knowing when to delegate and getting over the hump and getting delegation done. And so, so for instance, you know, my, my journey, we, we, we blew $150,000 building the first version because we de- delegated too quickly. And then we kind of had scars around delegation and held on to these things for way too long and didn't delegate soon enough again. So uh, like a good book that I like is the, uh, the E-Myth, great book. And one, of the, one thing they talk about in that book is building out an org chart for your business. And you might say, well, it's just me. I don't need an org chart. Well, you kind of do. Like, so if you'll just build out this, this mythological org chart for your business, so head of finance, head of accounting, head of marketing, head of legal, head of customer service, head of R&D, head of technical uh, aspect of the business, all these things, it's going to be your name on all of them. But then as time goes on and you make a little money, you can then delegate some of these roles to, to different members, uh, different freelancers or, or, or contractors or employees, and you can peel your name off that stuff. And if you go through that exercise over and over again, over a few year process, five years, 10 years, then you can build a real company around you. So Going through that exercise of understanding when to delegate and how is something that can get you through roadblocks and can help you scale your business. And it's one that I've struggled with, and I have held on to things too long when I should have been delegating them much quicker. I guess we all have some sort of micromanaging issues, regardless, right? Yeah, yeah, micromanaging and 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 just and just holding on to it. Like it's actually lazier to just do it than to invest in the system to get somebody else to be able to do it to your standard. Like you have to invest in that system and that's hard work and it's not necessarily pressing work. And so if you look at like a, a like a four block quadrant, you've got these activities, you got things that are urgent and, and important. And then you got things that are important, but not urgent. Well, like building a system to train people to do something is a thing that's, that's important, but not urgent. And so we never do those things. We're not inclined to do those things because we're always focused on things that are urgent and important. And so uh, we're just dominated by, by the urgency and, and we conflate urgency with importance. So you really want to get out of that, out of that box and into the, into the box of things that are important, but not necessarily urgent. And things like building systems to train people to do things is one of those things. And if you can think that way, then you can build processes to be able to delegate better. Again, thank you for coming on, Brian. So how can people connect with you or reach out to you if they want to learn more about your story or uh, GreenPal? Yeah, anybody listening to this doesn't want to waste time mowing your own yard, download GreenPal in the App Store or Play Store. You'll get hooked up with a great lawn mowing service in less than a couple minutes. Anybody that wants to reach out to me, just hit me up on my Instagram or my LinkedIn. Shoot me a connection on either of those places. Thank you again and best of luck for the rest of the year. Max, thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you again to Brian for coming on the show and sharing his entrepreneurial insights to help other entrepreneurs grow their business from zero to multiple figures in revenue without needing investor money to fund it. I would like to take a couple minutes here to recap a few of the points that he brought up that I think are most important for you to take away in this episode. One of the most common problems that I see with professionals and entrepreneurs is that they're planning too much. Nobody rewards you for being world-class ready. So plan at the minimum and then start executing. Because as the saying goes, 
you can't grow a business if you're always in the office. That's why Brian mentioned about getting customer feedback. He didn't make a lot of money in his first few years, but he kept going because he got customer feedback saying that they want the solution to work, not because they don't need it. And that's all the feedback he needed to stay the course, make some alterations. And now he's where he's at, managing and running a tech company, making $20 million a year in revenue. And the other point that I wanted to highlight here is Brian really talks about focus. Way too many entrepreneurs that start their business try to go too wide. And what I mean by that is that they will go and make tons of social media profiles, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and there is no focus with their strategy. It takes time to get good at one specific platform. So when you're starting off on multiple platforms at the same time, it's just not going to work because you do not have the knowledge on how each platform caters to their audience to make it work for you. So as Brian said, when you're starting your business, test multiple channels, find one that is getting you the most traction, and then focus on that channel. And the other thing he discussed about focus is that you need to go deep before you go wide. His business mainly focuses on lawn care and how to get good at connecting lawn care companies or freelancers with homeowners that need their grass cut. He didn't promote any other service. And that's what happens with a lot of entrepreneurs when they start off is they offer tons of products or tons of services, but it takes time to get good at providing quality for one specific service. So the recap on the topic of focus, when you're starting out and trying to grow your business, focus on one channel. And when it comes to your product, focus on one thing and make it the best thing you can provide for your customers. So they either come back or they refer you to their friends and family. In order to grow a successful business, you have to build the foundations first, the systems first, before you start expanding and scaling. Many entrepreneurs monetize or try to scale too fast, and it ends up leading to failure. Again, this is Chan with The Plan The Podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan. If you found this episode helpful, I would really appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family to help support the show. I post new episodes every Tuesday on all popular podcast platforms. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, where I post daily content on topics such as job search tips, career advice, and personal branding. That's it for me, and I'll see you next time.